Well, good morning, church. It is wonderful to be with you here this morning. Thank you for welcoming us and welcoming me into your houses this morning, into your kitchens and into your living rooms. You know, this past Thursday was for me, as I think it probably was for a lot of you, a very strange day uh, and very unexpected day when things happened that I never dreamed would happen uh, when I woke up that day. I was, uh, you know, it's one of those days where you just don't, there's, there's no book you can reach for, there's no call you can make, you just have to act as the situation uh, thrust itself upon us. You know, we were here this morning, or that morning, Thursday morning, and I never dreamed as I was sitting here that morning that as we were making our final plans, putting our final touches on the, uh, our coronavirus plan to hold our services and hold our programs you know, with certain measures and precautions, I never dreamed that morning that by the end of that day, I would be, along with our elders and our leaders, canceling our services, suspending our services uh, here for adults and students as a church on this for this March 15th this Sunday you know in the in my history as a pastor here uh, my almost 15 years and I think the entire history of this church that has never happened outside of maybe a snowstorm we've never canceled our services and that not only happened here as many of you know it's happening across the country and I imagine around the world but, you know, the next day, maybe the next, oh, 24 hours, I began to see this very strange situation in a different way. I began to see it really as an opportunity for us as a church, an opportunity to get out of our heads, to get out of our routines, maybe to get out of our stuckness as a church and to become the church, perhaps, in new ways. You know, frequently in history, uh, the crises of sort of natural disasters, let's say, that have happened, have brought about a crisis of faith. Because in the moment when these crises happen, the, it brings demands on our faith that we are greater than what we have, at least at first. But once we absorb this crisis, we are often driven back to the sources of our faith, the sources of our strength. And when we do that, we discover we can do things as followers of Jesus, in this case for us, that we didn't think we could do before. I think that is our opportunity as a church, as the church of Jesus Christ here today in this moment. We're talking here this morning and this series that we planned before this crisis about generosity. And I would say that generosity is really one of the major themes in all of the Bible. But when we typically think of generosity, I think the first thing that comes to mind is about the giving of money. But the giving of money is just one expression of generosity and often it is actually a bad indicator or not a good indicator that generosity is actually present as we'll see from the passage we'll look at this morning. The true source of generosity is not our wallets, it is our hearts. And in this short parable we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see the foundation, Jesus lays the foundation for all 
forms of generous living that I think God is calling us to as a church this morning. So if you have a copy of the Bible where you sit this morning, you can open it up or turn it on to the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 17, in a message titled, Generous Grace. Luke 18, 9 through 17, follow along as I read this morning. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. First point. I think that Jesus wants us to appreciate in this passage is that generous living begins with generous love. Generous living begins with generous love. What are parables? Parables are, are stories, short stories that, um, that are told to make a point. And I think the point that Jesus is trying to make here, or his point, is what does it really mean to be a Christian? That's what I think Jesus is saying. And, he's, and because it's a made-up story, he can, the details are very calculated, right? These two men are drawn very carefully, that is, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they could not be more different, right? Jesus is making a point. One of them is a Pharisee, which is, in this culture, he was a, he was a, a religious leader. He was a, a professional religious person. He was a devout religious leader and greatly respected. That's who the Pharisees were. And the other one was a tax collector, who, in, in this culture, was the most despised class of people in the Jewish community at these times. So these two people were very, very different. But I would suggest to you that the distance of time, you know, 2,000 years between the moments where Jesus spoke these words and where we read them today, that the real punch of this story has been somewhat lost on us because of the way that we understand these two characters, right? We often look at the Pharisee, I think, if you've been in church uh, for some of your life, we look at the Pharisees as sort of, you know, uh, religious, power-hungry 
bad guys. Kind of like we might look at, I don't know, a televangelist today. Someone who has ulterior motives, who's using religion to accomplish some kind of purpose to, uh, for themselves, right? They're bad guys. They're religious bad guys. And we often look at the tax collectors because of the way Jesus treats a lot of the outsiders in scriptures as sort of these lovable good guys kind of like you know the uh, the proverbial you know prostitute with the heart of gold kind of person but i would suggest to you that that is not how the contemporaries of jesus saw either one of these people when jesus spoke this story the majority of people would have understood the pharisees as people who were, who were generally respected in society. They were distanced themselves. They were, they were a reformed party, the Pharisees. They were one of the, not the only religious party, but they were ones that distanced themselves, separated themselves, that's the word Pharisee means separated, from the other parties, like the Sadducees, who were much more um, politically um, connected, much more um, uninterested in the doctrines of the faith. They were much more interested in making influence in, in the society. And the Pharisees were distanced themselves. They were a reformed party, and they were known for their devotion to the Torah or to the Bible. They lived their lives in line with the Bible. That's why he's saying here, and he means it, that they fasted regularly. They prayed every day. They gave a tenth of their income, not a small thing. They were devoted people, and most people, not all, but most people in Jesus' society respected them for that. The tax collectors, on the other hand, were people that were universally despised. Why? Because the tax collectors, although they were Jewish men, they were Jewish people, they lived in these communities, they ate kosher foods, people, they were a part of the community, but their job was to work for the Roman occupation, to collect taxes from the Jewish people in the villages, in the communities, and they would take the taxes, they would often charge more than what was being asked, and they would keep that money for themselves, the extra money, and they were universally despised for fleecing their own people. To say tax collector and a sinner was a virtual uh, saying the same thing in this culture. Therefore, if anyone was to leave the temple or church, right, in this little parable, if anyone was to leave justified, you would not have expected it to be the tax collector which is what Jesus says. But Jesus' point gets to the heart of the gospel and to the kind of people the gospel is supposed to produce. Okay? This little parable about two people in church is not about a believer and an unbeliever. Right? These are both people in the temple. One may be sitting in the front, one may be sitting in the back. But it's a difference, it's a contrast between the spiritually proud and the spiritually humble, right? And I would suggest to you that the most important word in this short parable is the word mercy, spoken by the tax collector, the second character in this story in the 13th verse. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The mercy of God, the word mercy illustrates um, the compassion of God, the forgiveness of God, which is rooted not in our merits, not in our good works, not in our any kind of 
religious exercises, but it's rooted in the love of God. That's where it's rooted. It's not something that we can accomplish, which is why this man, this Pharisee, left this church service unjustified. Listen, in the most important ways, this parable tells us, you are like all other people. I am like all other people in that we need God's mercy and we need God's forgiveness. Religion, self-justifying religion, blinded this man from what it really means to have a relationship with God and to experience God's mercy. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Micah would give this same message. Listen carefully to these words. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I would suggest to you that this is true Christianity. It's a life lived out of gratitude for grace received, which is why Jesus ends this. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And this is the kind of Christianity that I would suggest to us that a panic-stricken, hope-starved world is looking for in our world today. Generous living begins with generous love. Second thing this passage teaches us is generous love is meant to be shared. Okay, Generous love is meant to be shared. Now listen to uh, carefully for a minute. Why would this, there's this parable, very short, very direct, two people in church, one a, Seems like a good guy. Uh, one seems like a bad guy. Jesus is playing with our understanding of who these people are. He's trying to teach us what it really means to be a Christian. But then attached to this parable are just these three little verses about Jesus and babies and little children. Why is it here? I think this little incident, this little um, account of Jesus and the children and the disciples is simply an illustration of the primary teaching of this parable, right? What happens? Ba they bring babies and children to Jesus, and the disciples who see this rebuke the children, or perhaps their parents, and say, listen, Jesus doesn't have time for them right now. Just like the Pharisees were looking down on the publicans and the tax collectors, the disciples were looking down on these small children. And in doing so, demonstrating their spiritual pride, which is what the, Jesus is challenging in this passage, 
and keeping them from a full experience of God's grace. Listen, the only people, this is what Jesus is saying, that are able to truly receive God's grace are the people who have no standing, who can bring nothing before him, right? Why? It even says in verse 15, they're babies, right? Babies. They have no standing. They have nothing to offer a God. They are completely and totally vulnerable, which is Jesus' point, right? Do I get it? Do you get it this morning? Apparently, the disciples didn't get it. If you've truly received God's generous love, here's the point, it will not only change your destiny, not only change my destiny, it will change your view of the world and change your view of yourself. Listen to Paul's words, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Listen carefully to these words. For Christ's love compels us, is the point. Because we are convinced that one died for all, that's Jesus, and therefore all died, or listen, all were dead. Right? Everybody of all kinds of backgrounds. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. It's a whole new purpose for living. As I said, I think this is an opportunity for us, church, to really dig deeply, to be driven back to the sources of our faith, to be driven back to the sources of our, our strength and ask ourselves afresh, what does it really mean to be the church of Jesus Christ, right? What does it mean to be the church in our day? You know, the, the, the only national disaster that I've lived through, I mean, as a minister that in my memory was 9-11. And some of you perhaps were alive and in church, maybe even in this church in 9-11. And it was, a, it was an amazing experience uh, to see the world wake up in a way, at least the United States of America, and in many cases ask questions about God and even come back to church. But you know the most documented um, natural disaster in the early church uh, was the epidemics of the second and third century when the church was very young, very small, probably under um, 10 or 20,000 people uh, in the entire world were Christians at this time. In the second century, there was a smallpox epidemic in the Roman Empire. In the third century, there was a measles epidemic. And in these two single epidemics, over one-third or close to one-third of the entire Roman Empire was decimated because of this disease. There was nothing that could stand against, before modern medicine, before the kind of ways we understand these kinds of things. People were dying. It said in, in Rome, in, in, in the um, work that's been done on this, said that 5,000 people, People a day were dying in Rome. And that in, in Rome in that time was less than a million people. 5,000 people a day were dying and nothing could be done. One historian wrote about this, said this about this period. Again and again, the forward march of Roman power and world organization was interrupted 
by the only force which political genius and militarily, military valor were, were, were utterly helpless against, epidemic disease. And when it came, as though carried by storm clouds, all other things gave way and men crouched in terror, abandoning their quarrels, undertakings, and ambitions until the tempest had blown over, except for the newly minted Christian church, 10 or 20,000 strong in the entire world. Because the newly minted Christian church had the values of love preached in the words of Jesus, had the values of charity, and those translated into a commitment to social service. And just as their Savior had demonstrated sacrifice in his giving of his life, they too were to demonstrate sacrifice or sacrificial love in their service on behalf of one another. So, historians tell us, when this happened, these epidemics, it was so devastating when the people who had means, we're talking about people in the government, which is the vast majority of people who had jobs, we're talking about people who had money, independent wealth, people who were even doctors and people of in the medical profession, when these people were fleeing these cities and heading for the hills, these historians tell us, the saints went marching in. And even though they did not have modern medicine, they did not have um, um, any way except to care for people and love them, and many of them died. But in the end, that love and that care stemmed these epidemics. And when it was over, many of the people who were served in the Roman Empire, who owned, there was only one other religion, it was called paganism, which there was no love in paganism, no grace in paganism, no mercy in paganism. It was all about appeasement. But when they saw the selfless love demonstrated by these Christians who came at the disease, didn't run from it, they said, I want to know about this name. I want to know about who this Jesus is. And what historians will tell us, not just Christian ones, that by the beginning of the fourth century, paganism as a world religion had evaporated. And the Christian church, which at the end of the second century was maybe 20,000 strong, at the beginning or the middle of the fourth century, there were over 30 million Christians. Because they lived out the great teachings of Jesus. They will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. The coronavirus is certainly a crisis in our culture today. But I would suggest to you, church, it is an opportunity, actually, for us to be the church in ways that we have not been before. So what's my last point, my challenge to us on this March the 15th in this new world that we're living in? Though our doors are temporarily closed, our hearts remain open. What can we do? We don't know how long this will last. 
Will this be one Sunday? Will it be three Sundays? Will it be three months? Who knows? We have no idea. But this is not a time for us to sit at home. It's not a time for us to join the, you know, to become, to add to the fear, to add to the anxiety. But it's a time for us to move forward. It's time for the saints to go marching in and to be the church in ways that we haven't been before. So three pieces of um, advice or challenge that I want to give you as we close this service and begin being the church in a new way this morning. The first one is get serious or more serious about prayer. Okay? Get more serious about prayer. It's one of the most important things. Maybe the single most important thing that we have, the resource that we have, as followers of Jesus Christ, to make a difference in our lives, to make a difference in the community, to make a difference in the world. Right? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and confess their sins, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will hear their land. This is our opportunity to begin praying. Yes, to pray for the world. Yes, to pray for our leaders, our national leaders, our local leaders, to pray for the most vulnerable in our community, to pray for the people around us that will respond to this crisis, to respond to this fear in a way that would draw them closer to the true gospel and the true love of God, which is there for them. Let us take prayer more seriously. Second thing. I would challenge you to do. Listen, disciple your family, right? Disciple your family. I've talked to some friends, even in the last 24 hours. You know, it's not just the church that is, you know, closing its doors temporarily. Many businesses, many bu- people who are, who are furloughed, many of you, Teachers, they just closed some schools here in Rochester. Maybe more are to follow. The higher, uh, you know, the, the colleges are closed. Uh, uh, many companies are saying, stay home. Is this a day? Is this a week? Is this two weeks? What are you going to do in the meantime? Listen, don't get caught up in the hysteria. Don't spend all of your time, you know, just watching the news and, 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 and waiting, letting the days pass by. Disciple your family, Right? Spend time in the word of God. Don't you know, use the time that you've been given, the opportunity you've been given, parents, to do the most important responsibility you have, which is not raising money, which is not going to work. It's raising your children. Use the parent cues. Take advantage of the things Tricia just offered. And we're going to have more resources, but you have the word of God. You have the spirit of God. You know, take advantage of this time to disciple your families and finally make your house a church and your community your congregation you know when jesus gave the great sermon on the mount matthew chapter 5 6 and 7 and he gave these great words because no one even knew what the church was he said let me tell you what the church is he said to the small group of people i mean the, the, the church of jesus christ when the sermon on the mount was spoken was was um under 100 people, very, very small, the disciples and some followers. And he said, listen, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. How 
crazy. How, how you know, uh, amazing that Jesus would say those words to a very humble, small group of uneducated people, people who are not trained, you know, ministers, to say, you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He said that when there was not a single church building to come to, right? Because this is what the church really is. And I would challenge us to make your house a church. Yes, begin with your family, but who's in your Who's on your street? Who's in your community? Maybe there are, you know, uh, I know in my street, there's some, there's some um, single people, elderly people, widows on my street within a within few doors of my house. There's people who, who are um, vulnerable on your street. Maybe college students that are stranded. People who are lonely. People who are gripped by fear. How can you use your home as your church? Right? Bring something over to people. Right? We're, not, we're not restricted from spending time with our neighbors. We're not restricted from opening our homes and just being wise and thoughtful in the way we use it. And see your community as your congregation. Who knows what... Listen, the day's going to come. Maybe it's next Sunday. Maybe it's in July. I don't know when it's going to be. We're going to open these doors up again. And I hope we have to start a third, a fourth, a fifth service on Sunday number one because God's doing a work in this community. But until then, okay, until then, make your home, your church, and your community, your neighborhood, your congregation, and let's see what God does. Okay? I believe in you. I believe in us. I believe in him. Join me right where you sit. Let us pray. God and Father, we come before you today laying down our wants and our fears, and we humbly seek your mercy for our world, for our community, for the most vulnerable around us who may be in need or in trouble. Give us an extra measure of your grace and courage to speak your words, to show your love, and extend your hope. Help us to be a city on a hill in this community for such a time as this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church. See you soon.